Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and this is a special episode. This is the final episode in the Monday at 8 a.m. time slot. Uh, starting next week, we'll go to Sunday at 10, 11 a.m. Sunday at 11 a.m. But uh, for today, we're uh, still in the Monday at 8 a.m. time slot, and we're here with Dr. Tahari A. Jackson, the founder and tone setter-in-chief of Dr. Tahari Consulting, a veteran diversity, equity, and inclusion expert consultant. Uh, Dr. Jackson is also the lead equity specialist and trainer at the Equity Literacy Institute. Dr. Jackson is a diversity, equity, and belonging officer at the American Institute of Physics. Prior to that, she served as the expert consultant to the President and Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Program and um, manager at the uh, for the National Defense University, the Department of Defense. She joined the federal government after a 17-year career in academia, most recently at the University of Maryland, College Park. There, she served uh, as a professor, teacher, educator, and researcher of minority and urban education in the Department of Teaching and Learning, Policy and Leadership. She also is a certified federal equal opportunity um, counselor and certified sexual harassment and assault prevention uh, SHARP sexual assault response coordinator at SARC. Thank you. All right, welcome Dr. Jackson. Thank you, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So why don't we start the conversation off, you know, like uh, uh, talking a little bit about the uh, dialogues around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that, you know, because this is something that even in my own workplace, we started having dialogues around that. Um, so tell us a little bit about the history of that and how that kind of started and how, what your involvement in that was and how that kind of evolved out of the, you know, kind of awareness we've been getting as society for, you know, these kinds of issues. Yeah. Yeah. So the way that it evolved for me was rather, uh, organically. I just, you know, I, as you said in my bio, I started my career as a teacher and then as a teacher of teachers and a professor of professors. And I kept having to understand sort of how to get people to take on new perspectives and to really treat everyone else with dignity and respect. So there's a long history of that in academia. Um, you know, James and Cherry McGee Banks sort of have, you know, spearheaded after Carter G. Woodson, the uh, ethnic studies movement which led to multicultural education, which led to all sorts of other type of education. I think we're on liberatory and emancipatory education now. Um, but in the general public, it has always trafficked uh, along sort of a, a DEI has already has already always trafficked among a spectrum of, you know, well, we're going to move from being compliant, so we don't want to do anything illegal, and we don't want to not hire people, and we don't want to exclude, to, you know, sort of a more mainstream understanding of diversity, which is, hey, we should welcome people, and then inclusion, which is we should actually listen to them and see, you know, sort of what they need and how we can respect them more, and then now we're sort of on belonging-based organizations where people are really understanding what it takes to make sure everyone feels integral to a mission, and they're also thinking about how to, you know, just sort of make sure that the that the institution or the workplace or the organization itself is transforming, right? Because it's not going to do us any good to keep doing things with a very sort of white framework or with white racial dominance, or some people call it white supremacy, um, as the leading guideline. So diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work has actually evolved, and it's come quite a long way from what it used to be, which is let's just try not to do anything illegal. Yeah. And then it was, let's just try to hire a few people. So now it's actually pretty quite advanced, and I'm really honored to be a part of that. 
Thank you, thank you. And um, also, it's, it seems like this is really like rooted in critical race theory, which um, is the idea that, like, uh, my understanding, at least, of the idea, one of the principal premises of it is that racism is like the norm. And you seem to, you know, like the norm, normal in society, that it's the kind of expectation that it's the baseline, it's the expectation that, you know, society is going to be racist, or at least our society is going to be racist. And how do you respond to that, or how do you understand that? Yeah, you know what, I this is such a, 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 a germane question, because my academic training is in critical race theory, and specifically critical whiteness studies. So I actually study how sort of all forms of racism, and really all forms of oppression, are interconnected and interrelated. And when it comes to racism specifically, whether it's anti-black racism, anti-Asian racism, anti-Latinx racism, they all serve a white racial project, right? Like, mm. they all serve to suppress people of color. So, um, you know, I understand, you know, Derek Bell ha is, is incredible. He's obviously the, the, the chief co-founder um, of critical race theory. But the one tenet on which we, you know, disagree and depart is that is this idea of what you just said, right? Racial realism. So he actually goes a little further and says, well, not only is racism it's structural and deeply socio-historical and inherently rooted in the fabric and interwoven into the fabric of the United States, he talks about actually how it's um, it's so useful it's so profitable and it's so powerful um, that it's permanent, right? That we're actually never really going to overcome it. And so I actually don't don't agree. Um, I do think that racism is profitable. I think that it has deep roots in colonialism and, and colonization and other forms of, 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 of separating human beings according to some, you know, trait. It's just that racism is easy because we separate people according to physical traits. So you can physically look at someone and determine, you know, thinking you're head that you're determining their potential, their aptitude, their safety, their threat to you, uh, their things like that. So um, what's interesting about racism, though, and, and I mentioned this to you before in our notes, um, is that racism is actually a learned behavior. It's actually hate, I always say, is not innate. So what's helpful for me with regard to racism and its future is knowing that we taught racism, right? Young children at very young ages learn racism. And anything you can teach, you can unteach. Anything you learn, you can unlearn. Anything you manufacture, you can destroy. And anything that you fabricate, can, you can dismantle. So I actually don't think that racism is permanent. And I'm working toward a society where we actually don't have it. Yeah, it seems like... Um there's so much messaging in our media around racism, like so much like subtle messaging, the way that we've been kind of like um, bombarded with this kind of media messaging around uh, even colorism, around like how light or dark uh, people within people of color communities are, are. You know, in South Asia, a lot of people uh, seem to prefer lighter colored skin uh, people than uh, darker skin color people. So it gets to the point where it's like, even within communities of color, you know, there's that kind of internalized, um, you know, bias or prejudice against people who are, or more, just like less, against people who are, you know, more like less to pass, you know, that as white, you know. And you know, our definition or understanding of what is whiteness has been evolving over the years. And we can talk a little bit about that and a little bit about how the, uh, you know, we think about white supremacy. We think about 
uh, kind of we paint a broad brush over what is white, but that even that has come to pass, has come to def be defined differently over the years. If you talk a little bit how how has whiteness been changed its definition? Yeah, no, and I think that that was a great lead-in. So this this isn't in my bio, but I'm actually multiracial. Um, my mom is actually half Thai and half Indian, um, and in both my home cultures, <laughs> um, and also on my African American side, um, there's a there's a spectrum, right? And so the last time I went to Thailand, and every time I go to Thailand, my siblings and my mom and I always marvel about how if you walk into a store, you really can't find lotion. You have to ask for whitening milk, right? Mm -hmm. Because it because in Asian culture. It, it's actually it's not just sort of uh, that we're adhering to a global white beauty aesthetic and we're aspiring to that being dark or being melanated or having a tan a visible tan is often a sign of your status in society meaning you know if, if you're really really dark i mean you you could actually be one of those people who works out in a rice paddy right and yeah. if you're really really dark then that means you haven't had access to whiteness right in terms of your heritage and your lineage and that's that's meaningful you know in northern india and and all across india so I mean, I, my, my mom and I, my family and I are always grappling within colorism because there's a history. The most important history of colorism, I think, lies in African-American history, where actually proximity to whiteness was so much more meaningful um, based on the rape and based on the um, sexual exploitation, excuse me, of slave women. Um, you know, you would have these light skin, you know, as we, you know, they were referred to as house, you know, N-word. Um, you had these lighter skinned, you know, people who were not field slaves or field N-word because they were literally the children of, of white of white slave masters, right? They were literally the children um, of white people. So in African-American culture, that has a class and a privileged significance as well, because your proximity to whiteness was actually determined by your parentage, uh, by your heritage, and then also literally determined where you worked and what you did and what you had access to. With regard to whiteness in general, there's, I'll just say this really quickly, there's a difference among whiteness white people and white culture, right? So white people is literally just sort of a almost a legal definition, right? Um, there is an article by Cheryl I. Harris called Whiteness as Property. And she takes us through how throughout history, people have had to litigate their whiteness. At some point we had Indian Americans, right? Southeast Asian Americans litigating to be considered illegally white. We have Mexican Americans and Latinx Americans literally litigating to be considered white, whether it was for access to schools or access to jobs. I mean, we've really actually embraced this idea of whiteness as property because if you didn't have it, we were able to separate you and subjugate you, right? Mm. So white people, right? I mean, my grandmother had blonde hair and blue eyes. She was a little bit black. So she was, you know, she was one, according to the one drop rule or the law of hypo descent, she was legally black, right? So we could deny her all the rights, but she was phen phenotypically and physically white. So she was a white person sort of by phenotype, but not by law. And then of course we've got, you know, white culture, which is sort of all the standards and norms of white culture. And then we've got whiteness, which is a racialized system that benefits, uh, you know, and, and, and grants unearned advantage to white people. So I kind of have to understand the semantics around whiteness, but I do really appreciate the lean, uh, the, the lead in because colorism is real in every culture and whiteness is the goal. Mm, thank you. Thank you. And also it seems like, uh, when we think about like, um, 
the isms and bias, like racism and bias, and kind of distinguishing between them, like uh, and distinguishing and kind of separating them, because a lot of people feel it's knee-jerk reaction to feeling like they're racist or they're racially motivated. But bias, inherent bias, seems to be like a better approach to it, and understanding how those two terms are kind of uh, interconnected, but also kind of different. You know, we kind yeah. of clarify a little bit about that, yeah. No, absolutely. I this is actually one of my favorite questions because um so what's so I have a love hate relationship with things like implicit bias and subconscious bias. It's a great place to start, but we don't stay there, right? And the reason is that racism actually functions on at least four different levels. There's individual racism, which is sort of when someone, you know, tosses a banana at you, when someone, you know, calls you the N-word, you can catch that person, you can, you know, catch it on video camera. That's individual bias and so much, uh, uh, so individual racism and so much of that is based on stereotyping, right? Mm -hmm. And the biases that we have, particularly against people of color, particularly against African-American people about, you know, sort of how they're threatening or, you know, how they're dangerous or how they they are, you know, shiftless or lazy or whatever it is. If it's Asian Americans, we have stereotypes about them. So when we talk about individual, you know, individual racism, unconscious bias training um, or implicit bias training really helps people with that first level. But then there are the other levels. There's institutional and structural racism, which is when racism is imbued in an entire institution like the law, the policing of black bodies, you know, um, the way that we sent it, the way people travel through, you know, the legal system. That that's riddled with racism, and that's an entire institution. Then penultimately, you've got cultural racism, which, you know, again, you know, it, it's when it's so deeply imbued in the psyche of everyone that you can't actually just sort of indict one institution, right? This is why people get scared when my black, dark-skinned brother gets on an elevator, right? That's cultural racism. You can't take mm. one person to jail over that. And then finally, there's socio-historical racism, right, which is uh, bodies of science that have told us over and over throughout time that all people of color, irrespective of who they are individually, are, are inferior to white people, right? This is why we think that African-Americans are closer to primates and monkeys and gorillas than they are to humans, right? So the science du jour has told us what to believe about African-Americans, what to believe about Latinx people and, and all manner of people. So the only problem I have with unconscious bias and sort of just staying in that arena is that Peggy McIntosh, coiner of the term white privilege, would remind us that racism is more than a mere collection of individual acts of meanness. It is systemic, it is structural, it is socio-historical, and it's contemporary. So start with bias, but please do not stay there. Yeah, it seems like the institution, when we look at it broadly, it's not just about, oh, so-and-so, like just to reiterate what you're saying, kind of develop it. Um, so it's not just individual people or interpersonal. It's also institutional and it's ideological. It's all being supported by those systems. Um, so when we talk about, like, for example, I had this big conversation with a friend of mine, some uh, white friends of mine who said that about cultural appropriation and how um, the culture of, of people of color are being sometimes are used by white artists or used by white uh, industries, entertainment industries, and then uh, given, like for example, like uh, a white singer might use uh, the songs of uh, traditionally people of color communities, like uh, soul or or something like that, and like they're not giving that opportunity to people of color, 
But then, what, what, then they're arguing, oh, what happens when um, the reverse happens? Is that cultural appropriation? I was arguing that it's not the same when it's reversed because the power structures are are benefiting the the white artists. You know, it's like the power structure is actually behind them. So tell us a little bit about what your interpretation, what your understanding of cultural appropriation is and how that kind of plays out in regards to the idea of reversing the flow versus, you know, the, the traditional way it's presented. Yeah. Yeah, that's such an intricate question. So I'll address sort of both cultural appropriation and just, I think, reverse sort of racism or reverse appropriation yeah. in general, right? So cultural appropriate, I actually just gave um, a presentation about this to a medical faculty. Um, I, we were talking about developing curriculum and we were talking about how sometimes, you know, entire cultures will, will look at a book or someone will rebrand something or slap a name on a new concept. Mm. And, a, and a person of color or an entire culture of color will say, we've literally been doing that for centuries. That that has a name, but yeah, it wasn't yeah. valuable until you stole it. Right. One of my favorite tweets ever ever is, you know, about, you know, it, 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 it's only cool if it's stolen art. Right. It, it's stolen <laughs> art form. So another example I give is I, I'll never forget this. I read a lot of magazines and I remember when Kim Kardashian was wearing her hair literally in cornrows. Right. Um, literally in cornrows. There was this uh, co magazine cover and then there was a, a, a store, a subsequent story about how to get boxer braids. And I was like, boxer braids? Those are not boxer braids. Those are cornrows. And black women have been wearing their hair like that. But it's not it's not acceptable until someone white does it. Or in her case, white presenting, right? White yeah, passing. Yeah. So she's very white proximal, right? So I think what's frustrating for people of color is that you don't value something until you steal it, right? It's not valuable. It's not a valuable art form until it makes it to, into the mainstream. And then you reap all the profits, right? You the, All the gains, all the credit, all the... So that's what's frustrating about cultural appropriation, whether it's forms of dress, styles of hair, literal, you know, epistemologies or bodies of knowledge, literal medical practices, right? So that's frustrating. But I think what's interesting about, you know, any sort of claims of reverse this or reverse that because I deal with this a lot in academia. You know, people will, uh, you know, decry uh, reverse racism, right? Well, what isn't that reverse racism if you keep white people out? One of my first questions is if you are outraged by the instance in which a single white person or even like you said a group of white people or a white institution is, is is somehow betrayed or left out or excluded, if you are outraged by that one instance, what is the everyday racism with which you are completely okay? What is the everyday exclusion with which you are completely complicit and complacent? Right. Mm -hmm. You are completely content when throngs of people of color or women or people in the LGBTQ plus community are literally systemically data. driven. These people are excluded every day. But when one of you is left out, when one of you is excluded, when one of you doesn't get the scholarship, now you're outraged. So I, I, every time someone comes to me with sort of a reverse, you know, whatever it is, isn't that reverse sexism? It's a man, you know, yes, there are actually instances of where people, injustice is really quite nasty, right? So pe lots of different people experience injustice. But whenever people come to me with reverse racist arguments, my very first question is, what was the original racism with which you are completely fine? And then the conversation changes because now we have to talk about everyday racism as opposed to when that one time or in that one instance that you felt disenfranchised. And so I think that's, uh, yeah, that, that, that's one of my least favorite arguments to have. 
Yeah, it connects a lot to meritocracy and the the um, kind of phantom of meritocracy and how we kind of seem to uh, seem to believe that we're in a society in which um, you know kind of individualism and having to do with uh, pulling yourself up by bootstraps, and yet at the same time, there's so much. As you were saying, as we're leading into this, um, so much institutional uh, bias, so much institutional favoritism uh, that kind of pushes forward certain groups like uh, and and when we think about intersectionality as well, about how you know groups that are like, for example, you know, like how male privilege for myself or all this kind of thing, or or, or like economic, socioeconomic privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and how that all works together so we become aware, we can raise our awareness for that at the very least to be able to understand that, you know, meritocracy, the idea of meritocracy is very undermined by all these kind of aces in the hole, if you will, that we have. Yeah. So you yeah, talked about actually, Jen, Jen, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I get excited about your questions. So I keep, I keep truncating your, your questions. I'm so sorry, but I just, I get really excited about meritocracy because meritocracy is a straight up myth. It does not function the way it's supposed to. It's a lovely ideal, which is why I actually love this country, right? Like I don't love us for our realities. I love us for our ideals. And one of the ideals that we have in this country is the idea that if you work hard and you put forth effort, you will get what you deserve. This is a country that values rugged individualism, like you said, pulling oneself up by the bootstraps, right? Um, lean, you know, sort of uh, what is an honest day's work, honest day's pay, yeah. right? Yeah. So this country believes, I mean, we really do believe that everybody is experiencing that. But the problem is that A, that's not true. And B, the only thing that upsets a system of perfect meritocracy is privilege and unearned advantage when people are let in simply because of their maleness simply because of their whiteness or simply because of their straight you know het- uh, heterosexuality so i think what's really interesting about meritocracy i've actually written about this in a chapter in the poverty and education reader and it's uh, it's edited by paul gorski and julie landsman and i just take us through my educational experiences you know sort of over the course of my life i've got you know two degrees from harvard i've got a phd but I went to public schools and it was a struggle. It was a struggle. And I talk about how racism, sexism and all these sort of intersectional identities really hindered me in ways that it shouldn't have. Right. Mm-hmm. And so basically the, the tenet there is I did everything right. right. I did all the things I did the thing. I did all the right things. But here's why my education was so difficult. And here's where life was unnecessarily difficult, because I didn't have the advantage of maleness or I didn't have the advantage of having access to any wealth, much less intergenerational wealth. So I think meritocracy is a beautiful ideal, just like a lot of democratic ideals we have in this country, but it is elusive as an everyday reality. And I'm working against that, or I rather, I guess I'm working toward it. <laughs> I'm working toward it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And also um, when we think about, um, you know, all these isms and all these kind of uh, mm-hmm. ways in which we understand uh, our identity, um, you know, sometimes it's easy to say it's someone else's problem, you know, and mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, thinking about it in terms of someone else's problem, but um, how we can kind of own the problem and how we can kind of say, you know, I'm going to do my part to at least uproot that inherent bias in ourselves and within our myself. So tell us a little bit about audiences and how, 
the upward gaze that you mentioned in um upwards upward gaze yeah uh how you mentioned in your pre-interview talk um so tell us a bit about that and how that how the audience plays into it how who you're talking to how you adapt your message to understand help them understand yeah yeah. So no, I, I love talking about that because I think that's kind of what I think that's actually really what sort of sets me apart from the way a lot of other people do this work. So I actually developed a framework of sort of four different gazes that people take, can take, should take, do take. And one of the gazes that people get stuck in is what I call the downward gaze, right? Mm. We are a, an institution. We So we're a university or we're a nonprofit organization or we're a club or we're any organization. And we are going to do we're going to look at diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work as the exclusive domain of the people who are most oppressed by oppression, right? So in our organization, we're going to lean on the African-American people to educate us and to tell us what to read. We're going to lean on the women to educate us about sexism. We're going to lean on the LGBTQ plus community to educate us about homophobia, right? So, and so on and so forth. So what ends up happening in organizations is that white people, people and males and straight people um, and people who are what I called are in, in have empowered identities, they just kind of excuse themselves from the whole bit and they don't participate. They don't sit on committees, diversity committees. They don't do any of the program planning, right? We just had Women's History Month. So they just sort of go back to their offices. They close the door. And if they're in academia, they publish and they flourish and they get it even more power, right? Mm. While the people who most are disenfranchised by various isms and forms of oppression do all the work. Now, what I like to do is to use the upward gaze, which says, no, no. Women know full well how sexism functions. So what we need is to involve and actually Focus on men and men presenting allies who can become better allies and accomplices for us because you have the power to oppress women and you have control over sexist systems, right? Instead of going to the LGBTQ plus community and exhausting them, no, no, we're going to work with heterosexual straight people. And there's a history of really fantastic gay straight alliances, but we want you to understand sexual identity, sexual you know, we want you to understand us and we want you to educate yourself. And most importantly, when it comes to anti-racism, people of color know full well how racism functions. We live it every day. These are the bodies that carry around our souls. They do, we just happen to be encased in varying degrees of melanin. And we don't, the work of anti-racism is not Hours. The work of anti-racism is for white people. So the way I do this work, I mean, so for example, you know, organizations love to have affinity groups, right, where you go. And for me, you know, as an Asian woman, it's, it's important for me to have that space. I don't have to explain fish sauce and bubble tea. If I'm, a, you know, I'm showing up in my black woman self, it's important for me to have a place where people don't ask to touch my hair for goodness sakes, right? So affinity groups are great. Employee resource groups, employee network groups are great. But what I always prescribe coordinatingly is solidarity groups. Because there needs to be a place where a white person can say, you know what, I don't identify as a person of color, but I really want to learn how to be a better ally and accomplice for people of color. Men can say, hey, I don't really know anything about sexism and how that works, but I really want to learn how to advocate for equal and equitable pay, right? So I always prescribe things like that. But that's such a phenomenal question because I think that organizations get stuck 
and they exhaust the very people who are, end up serving as free internal diversity consultants in addition to the jobs for which they are already underpaid. I'm going to change that. Thank you, thank you. So this is my listeners of the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. We're here with Dr. Hari Jackson, uh, you know, and we're discussing a little bit about critical race theory and various kinds of uh, related diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and all these kinds of ways in which we can approach uh, race relations, race understanding, racial understanding, gender understanding, and sexuality understanding, so we can kind of create a more inclusive society, a society that's more egalitarian, a society that's uh, a little bit more uh, hopeful, if you will. And I think that's ultimately what it comes down to is like, you know, even though it seems like um, there's so much institutional uh, weight behind all these um, various perspectives, uh, you know, kind of this exclusionary perspectives, we have, we want to, as you were saying, uh, we, when, you t- when you're teaching, when you're kind of uh, showing your principal discipline with others, uh, what you hope listeners will receive from you? Uh, what do you hope listeners will receive from you? What do you hope? What kind of gift would you give them? And that was the question that uh, I gave in the pre-interview questions. And I just to lead into that. So uh, tell us a little bit about what you hope people will receive when they listen to you um, talk about this. You know, not not to feel and just to clarify that people shouldn't feel like it's there as them, it's on them, but rather it's on them to change. You know. So tell us a little bit about that, yeah. Yeah, well, what I hope people always glean from my talks, my presentations, my workshops, whatever I'm doing, I hope they glean two things. Um, Number one is empowerment. Um, I'm actually about to write a piece called The Irony of Exclusion in Inclusion, right? Why everybody needs to be at the DEI table. Because part of what I see is that you'll have a well-meaning white person. You'll have a well-meaning man. You'll have a well-meaning Christian, right, who really wants to understand Islamophobia and other forms of faithism. And they'll just sort of say, well, I don't know where I fit into this dialogue, right? I don't want to make things worse. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Maybe this is not for me. So again, that's how people of color and and minoritized groups end up doing all the work, as it were, right? Because there are well-meaning people who are empowered who really feel very disempowered and feel very excluded and very sort of displaced by the by the diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging movement or any sort of work that's happening where they are. So the first thing I'd like to do is just make sure people feel empowered. So even within an hour presentation, I always stop, I always end the presentation with five things you can do. I actually wrote an article earlier, actually last year around the time of the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. And it says, and you know, the title was I'm white and I'm outraged by Ahmad Arbery's murder. Now what? Right? And it was called a practical guide for white allies and accomplices. And it was literally a step-by-step guide for white people to learn how to be better allies and accomplices for, for African-Americans and for people of color in general. So the first thing I hope people get is hope. I mean, is empowerment. The second thing I hope they get is hope. And I'm going to, I, I hate to repeat myself, but I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. There is nothing permanent and there is nothing natural and there is nothing innate about hate. Hate is not innate. So what I love about racism, sexism, uh, homophobia, transphobia, um, ableism, linguicism, all of those things are learned. And, and I've seen this with my own eyes because I literally used to be a preschool teacher. And I used to work with the youngest people who go to school. And they would come to, 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 to class with ideas and they would have questions about difference. But they hadn't yet equated differences with deficits. 
So if racism was ours to create, we can destroy that, right? If sexism was, was ours to fabricate, we can dismantle that. And if oppression and systems of oppression were ours to manufacture, we can dismantle that. So I don't believe that, that racism and other forms of isms are permanent. I believe they are mutable, they are changeable, and they are destructible. Thank you. Thank you. It's so powerful to hear you say that because it's like so easy to feel disheartened and so easy to feel like these are never going to change. And I think that kind of mentality that asserts that they're unchangeable seems to not give a pathway for us to it seems to disempower, rather disenfranchise rather than empower and, and really give hope. So I, I agree with that completely. I think we need to um, kind of ha take on that view that take on the the reality, take on the truth, to that truth will empower us. And when we talk about empowering truths and such, um, you know, like when you talk about empowering truths, you know, how like these truths are self-evident and that they are empowering us in our communities. So um, thinking about um, like, you know, one thing we talked about was a specific truth that acts as your ways in your empowerment. And uh, you talked a little bit about... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's something you're talking about just now, like uh, the res level of resistance you face while teaching the basic concepts of bias, stereotyping, discrimination, and how you remember something about that your father taught you uh, over the past decades. Can you tell us about kind of like that lesson, if you remember this, or if something about kind of like a memory, a memory that 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 really resounds with you as a lesson for these kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, so one of my unwavering truths that I get to operate by every day, at least, you know, for the last five years, because, you know, I've, I've been, I was a professor for 17 years. I've actually been a consultant for almost as many years. Um, one truth that I have is something that I learned five years ago, or actually I'll say it was solidi solidified five years ago when my dad passed away. The, the adage that I live by is that you can learn and grow and change right up until the moment you pass away. I used to say the day you die, but I actually, I know for a fact that you can change and you can take in new information and you can gain a new perspective um, and you can process new information right before you die. And again, this is going to sound a little uber macabre, you know, but but just hear me out. So several years ago, my dad actually was dying um, and I had the pleasure, actually, I'm so glad I was able to be in his ICU room to witness his passing. Um, he was experiencing organ failure. They were shutting down one by one. But just before he passed, my sister in Germany, who could not physically be in his, in his uh, hospital room, she called and she cracked a joke. And my dad processed it as funny. And he literally cracked a smile and he passed away. He died with a smile on his face to the point that we asked the funeral home if they could preserve his expression. We said, please, whatever you do, just let me let him look just like this when we see him again. But but the point of that story is that you can be the most intransigent sexist and you can change. You can be the most intransigent, intractable, obstinate, all the words, all the synonym, deeply entrenched homophobe or transphobe, and you can change. And what's really hopeful 
is that you can be a lifelong racist and believe to your core that people of color are evil, that they're out to replace you, that they don't deserve to, to be in power, that they're not as smart. You can be that person. You can be that intransigent, that resistant, and you can change. So the truth that guides me every day is I go out and, and I, I mean, this, this work is hard, right? I work with the military. I work with federal agencies. I work with scientists. I work with, uh, you know, universities. And, and, and I work in places where they are mostly white and mostly male. So one of the things that I like to say is I, my audience are frequently just sort of I'm staring out at what I call white icebergs. These are people who do not want me there. I was resentfully hired. They don't want to hear anything I have to say. And they do not believe that people, all people deserve dignity and respect. So the truth that guides me and it gets me up every morning to continue being an anti-racist advocate is the fact that you can learn and grow and change right up until your heart stops. And I know because I've seen it for my Myself. thank you thank you and also it seems like uh as far as like literature goes and um readings that you can do that people can do to um like expose themselves to different viewpoints and different perspectives that seems like they're always a good place to start like when you're reading the stories of you're really getting intimate with a character or a, a narration of a person's life and really getting intimate with that so you can understand breaking down the barrier of like literature is a great way to and and also even memoir is a great way to get um familiarity with the other perspective um if you can recommend a few th books that change your perspective and maybe books that you think people should read that would help them Oh my gosh, yeah. I well, so I will answer both because I this is literally what I get paid to do. People are like, what do we read? I call all these resource lists and some of them are for CEOs and business executives and some of them for are for military leaders. And so this is really sort of my jam. This is this is what I do. So the first thing I'll say is just for me, when I'm looking to learn something new or when I'm looking to sort of locate myself in a story, I go to really poignant writers like Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, I actually recommend thoroughly that everyone read Between the World and Me. He's got some stories in there about not only American racism, but sort of being able to juxtapose that with European racism based on his time in France. He's got this really touching story of how a white man just sort of wanted to lead him down a little dark alley and just to show him something beautiful. But because he he was so accustomed to being villainized himself because there were such barriers between, you know, sort of literally between the world and him, between the way he's usually perceived. He didn't want to go. You know, he didn't want to go down this alley with this strange white man in France. And he was going to miss out on something beautiful because there were barriers on both sides. There was fear on both sides. And so when I go to refresh myself and to learn a new perspective, I try to read people of color and I really like to read women as women of color as well. But what my, my bread and butter is, is to direct usually mostly white people to literature that is anti-racist. So when I did, you know, did my dissertation research, I interviewed people like Peggy McIntosh, who literally wrote, you know, The Invisible Knapsack, you know, that she she's a coiner of the term white privilege. So I always direct people just to read that. It's short, right? It doesn't have any citations. I direct people to read people like Tim Wise, who is a white Jewish man who under 
understands the struggle, right, of people of color from the other side. So he's written books like White Like Me, Dear White America, right? Also, one of my favorite authors to recommend, not only Abram Kendi, you know, How to Be Anti-Racist, who I think has just a, a phenomenal grounding in socio-historical and contemporary racism, racism, but because I worked in education for so long, where 82 to 90% of teachers are white, and primarily white women that fit a very narrow demographic, I direct them to Robin D'Angelo. Now, she's more well-known for her recent work, like White Fragility, but people don't know that she wrote an article several years ago in a, in a, in a, pub, in a journal called Multicultural Perspectives, and the title of the piece is my class didn't trump my race, using oppression to face privilege. And the reason that that piece is so seminal and so groundbreaking and such a watershed moment literarily is that she is speaking to white people who are poor, who will often say, well, I'm poor and I'm white. And, you know, and so I know what it's like. Yes, you're poor and you're white and you know what it's like to overcome poverty, but you don't know what it's like to overcome blackness. And you don't know what it's like to overcome color, right? So Robin D'Angela, in just a very sort of seven-page piece, really disaggregates the, the conflation of racial oppression and class oppression. And are they often, um, you know, is it intersectional? Yes, because people of color are overrepresented in poverty. But sometimes you'll get white people who'll say things like, well, uh, my my ancestors came over here penniless from Poland or, well, you know, I'm I'm Jewish. Right. And so therefore, you know, they'll, they'll sort of show up to a racial dialogue in their most oppressed identity. Mm -hmm. But in doing so, they miss the opportunity to co-opt the value of their whiteness. And Robin D'Angelo is a phenomenal person to read if you need to understand how to be poor, how to be Jewish, right? How to be, you know, differently abled if you're white, but still recognize that you are white, right? Because no one's saying that your life hasn't been difficult if you're white. What we are saying is that your life hasn't been difficult because you are white. So I recommend Robin D'Angelo for that reason. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's really great because I think that we need to understand how to, as you're saying, I think also one aspect of it was about leverage our privilege, you know, like leveraging our privilege to help others. So using our privilege in a way that, you know, understanding that there's nothing to be ashamed of with privilege, but it's something that we can use to our advantage to help others, to help people who are, uh, who are also oppressed. So if we if we kind of pride ourselves in our overcoming or, or dealing with oppression, then we should also kind of use that. We should acknowledge the places in which we're privileged and be able to use that privilege effectively, I think is what I kind of heard from what you were saying as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, so every time, literally, even if it's only a 45-minute presentation, I always start with the adage that I learned from one of my teachers when I was studying how to sort of retain the most, you know, the wokest, most critically conscious, most anti-racist teachers. And she just said, Dr. Jackson, you can't do good social justice work. You can't do good anti-racist work if you don't first do deep personal identity work. Because you've got to know how you're showing up to the racial dialogue. So in every presentation I do, I always start with the idea that we've got to understand that we are multiply identified individuals. We are multi, you know, we have multiple identities in one body, some of which render us privileged and some of which render us oppressed. And we've got to understand how to show up to a racial dialogue. Because as I just said, if you show up to that racial dialogue and you're like, well, you know, I'm a police officer. And so blue lives matter 
You missed the opportunity. You what you've done is you've created a false equivalency with a uh, profession uh, and a color that I can't take off like a uniform or a bat suit. So you can't uh, show uh, up to the racial dialogue in your professional identity. You've got to show up to the racial dialogue in your in your in your in your racial identity. And that's really hard for white people because what they want to say is, well, either I want to be empathic and I want to understand, you know, I want to use my empathy as a Jewish person or, you know, I've got I'm from a single family. I've struggled too. Right. So what they're really trying to do is say, look at me. I understand struggle. And that's laudable. And there's a place for that. But what we've got to be careful to do is to not create false equivalencies that make you so, you know, quote unquote, oppressed that you can't conscientiously co-opt your privilege. And that's I think where white people really struggle and that's genuinely what I help them work through. Thank you. Um, so this is the Truth to Power Show. I'm ready for Brooklyn. Uh, I just want to remind listeners that um, Ready for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization and uh, we you know, kind of uh, pro- provide media literacy, education to the uh, community to help us uh, support us. Please go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, to have dialogues like this, important dialogues like this, more dialogues like this, please go to RadioForBrooklyn.org slash donate. We make a monthly pledge or a one-time donation. Uh, please support Radio for Brooklyn. Uh, if you're listening to this this uh, program over your computer, you can free yourself up by listening over the iPod or uh, iPhone or Android by downloading our free apps on those platforms, on the Play Stores. Um, so we're here having a, di- a dialogue with Dr. Hari ja- Jackson, uh, talking a little bit about... Uh, race and the meaning of race and meaning of uh, racial equality kind of trying to striving towards that and we were just talking about the police and you know I wanted to bring up George Floyd's uh, case uh, his uh, the, the trial uh, tell us a little bit about um, kind of how we should view or how we can view um, all these you know, it seems like seemingly endless number of trials around police brutality or police um, killings uh, and how we can view that in a way that, you know, I, it just feels like this becomes such a contentious. You're bringing up the Blue Lives Matter thing and the movement and uh, the aspect of it. And it's very important for us to acknowledge, you know, on the one hand, we want to acknowledge, sure, I mean, the police are doing good work in some respects. And uh, we want to improve the society in general, our responses to crisis situations. So that's why I believe in... Um, you know, improving our infrastructure in regards to social worker uh, responses, including social workers in that response, and not putting it all on police. I think police like have a lot of burden where they're being responding to every single incident. You know, like practically every incident that uh, you call nine one for, you have a police response for. Of course, there's EMS as well, but um, you know, kind of lowering that burden so that then we can have more people, more robust response from people who are not armed all the time, you know? So let's talk about the police and how we can respond to uh, police violence. What is the most effective way to even have that dialogue, you know? Yeah, I so you just bring up you just brought up a litany of great topics and I'll just I'll just stress the two, right? So one is sort of how to parse and how to critically consume the media around the Derek Chauvin trial because George Floyd is not on trial. You know, language shapes thought and semantics matter, right? So what's interesting is that I keep seeing plastered over the headlines. I actually at this point I can't watch the news because my, my racial battle fatigue is, is at its zenith. It's too high. So it's too traumatizing for me 
me to watch the news, but I read the news, right? Because I can control what I click on. But every time I've seen it cast in the news, it says the George Floyd trial. And that is highly problematic because George Floyd is not on trial. George Floyd didn't do anything to deserve being murdered at the hands of police, right? So actually he's not on trial. And by, by, by proxy, all black men are not on trial. Not even all people who maybe accidentally or even inadvertently or advertently use fake $20 bills. He's not on trial. What's on trial is, is, is Derek Chauvin for his direct actions. But secondarily, what's on trial is the way that African-American men move through the legal system and the way that racism uh, sort of taints the legal system. That's exactly where critical race theory comes from. Most people don't know that critical race theory as an ideology and as a practice and as a framework um, came from critical legal studies, right? Which was this, this notion that the law is not blind. Justice is not blind. So critical race theory literally emanated from a critique of the institution of law. And the reason that that's important is because we can see all levels of racism in the institution of law. We see the over-policing of black bodies and bodies of color. We see the disproportionate response of what it means for a group of people of color to get together peacefully, right? Like the anti-racism and Black Lives Matter protests, as opposed to violent white murderers and violent white inter insurrectionists. We see the juxtaposition. So when you talk about, you know, sort of instead of using armed police for every response and really working on social work infrastructure, I actually agree with you wholeheartedly, but we have an incredible amount of legislative and uh, and legal reform to, 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 it, to sort of embark on as well. It should be easier to prosecute a hate crime. I don't know how you kill six Asian women, right? Six out of eight people who are Asian and it's suddenly almost insurmountable, right? Dylan Roof killed nine black people in a church and we don't know if that was a hate crime, right? So we've got some work to do. We've got to make sure that when people of color lose their lives, that the people of color who actually died are not on trial retroactively. We've got to make sure that we're improving the system of law so that people of color can enjoy the same freedom, whether it's everyday freedoms of not being surveilled and disproportionately arrested or the same freedom as they move through the legal system. So it's actually it's so difficult for me to watch the Derek Chauvin trial that I'm not watching it at all, but I'm watching what happens to our legal system and to law enforcement as a result. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And also, it's like uh, the whole conversation has been hijacked by the idea that, yeah, we're looking over. I was going to say that. And I think it was good for you to point out the way that the conversation has been hijacked to look at all the different aspects of, of George Floyd and kind of criticizing him and all this kind of thing is just not appropriate. We said we should be looking at the legal system and uh, the ways in which police use force and examining that, examining kind of whether or not, you know, his use of force was, uh, and it was, and in my opinion, overuse, overusing force and how we can change that, how we can kind of, you know, change the ways in which we approach the use of force and, um, and try to systemically create pathways for more compassionate, you know, um, uh, approaches to, for example, with, uh, anyone, anyone who's, who's, uh, any, anyone who's being approached and, uh, like mental health issues or all these kinds of things, all these kinds of issues that come up where people get killed because they don't know how to deescalate situations. 
you know, and de-escalation of situations is a very um, essential tool that we needs to be emphasized in our society. So, in speaking more broadly, I mean, speaking more broadly to you know incidents in in, in with police that uh, seem to be problematic and and how we can kind of create a society in which we can have more robust responses. Yeah. Yeah, no, I just want to echo that 1000%. Um, I think that, you know, I one of the one of my favorite curricula when I was a professor was peace education, right? So let's say we we really do sort of defund these school resource officer positions. Um, they perhaps not in every case, because I understand that actually, you know, it, it's really good to have some positive, you know, school policing and some positive community policing. But if we focused as much on conflict resolution, and if we instituted counseling, right, so people could so, you know, children and, and young students could learn how to regulate their themselves. And if we focus, this goes back, this loops back to something you mentioned earlier. This is where I have a love-hate relationship with implicit bias and anti-racism training, right? Mm. So if we could actually speak to commu all communities, right, whether they're educators, social workers, um, medical professionals, and especially law enforcement, about making sure they can be introspective enough to check their racism at the door, right, to check their sexism, to check their it literally their 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 bias before they enter situations where someone could get killed i think that's a far better use of resources um yeah so i actually completely agree with you i think de-escalation peace education um and and moments where we get to talk as entire institutions about how you are being affected by implicit bias that's important because i'll just say this you know in closing i you know, what's happening when uh, a police officer often sees a black man is implicit bias is overtaking their brain, right? Mm -hmm. They're seeing this man, he may be unarmed, but in the eyes of, of a white police officer, or in many people, you don't even have to be a law enforcement officer, in the eyes of many people, that unarmed black man, right, Michael Brown, Tamir Reyes, Trayvon Martin, they are actually more dangerous than a white man who just killed people. Right. Yeah. This yeah. is why we know like this, this. This is this was the case of Dylan Roof. You literally just killed nine people. But you are. So, but because you are redeemable and because you are a wayward boy and because you're a white man, you know, who is salvageable and ha and this is aberrant and you went astray. You are worth saving. And we're not even afraid of you after you kill people. Um, and so I think it's a ridiculous, uh, you know, uh, proposition that people are more afraid of my unarmed, dark skinned black brother in a jacket carrying a wine bottle than they are of a white man with an AR-15. That is racism. That's unconscious bias. That's stereotyping. And that is lethal. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, very good. And I think that, uh, yeah, I definitely agree. And I think we'll just do some closing comments here. We have like five more minutes left. So some closing comments you want you want the listeners to take away from and where they can learn more where uh, where they can learn more where they where they can continue their education something like some recommendations uh, uh, what they, what actionable items they can take yeah 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. So actually, I mean, this is actually such a relevant question. So I spent all this time in academia sort of writing these, you know, um, you know, inane articles and journals that people may or may not have had access to and some of which you have to pay for. And so lately I have made the transition to writing popular press pieces so people can go to Medium. Um, that first article that I wrote on Medium, um, I'm, I'm white and I'm outraged by Ahmaud Arbery. That's been shared about 250,000 times at this point yeah, because it, yeah. it's just exactly what you said said it's a practical guide right here's what you can do at home here's what you do at work here's what you do writ large right and the other thing that i, I suggest people check out especially with regard to, to white anti-racism is jonathan osler's uh, white accomplices framework you've heard me say that word several times i would really love it if people could go to whiteaccomplices.org whiteaccomplices.org um, because he actually he actually has a grid of what you can do depending on what your sphere of influence is. If you have time, this is what you do. This is where you volunteer. This is where you write and send letters. This is who you call. If you have money, this is these are the community-based organizations that you donate to, right? If you have influence in some other way, right, this is what you do. So what I love about that website is that it is actually specifically geared toward white people who feel quite powerless in the struggle for racial equity and social justice. Um, I do have a website coming up. It's going to be drtahari.com. As soon as I have my druthers about me, I'm going to finish that. Look for that in the next couple months. Um, I also... Um, Oh, gosh. Well, oh, I have a LinkedIn page. So lots of people reach out to me there. I'm on Facebook. Um, you know, and if, if people contact you, they really, really want to want to get me. And I'm happy to share phone numbers and emails and all that sort of thing. But the website is forthcoming. People can go to Medium. I write there. I attach all of my works to my LinkedIn profile. So that's really sort of the hub uh, until I get my website up. Thank you. Thank you. So just remind listeners, this is the Truth to Power show. We're going to start next week at Sundays at 11 a.m. Thank you so much for being here. Um, it's been a really great conversation about all these different topics in regards to racial relations and and uh, and and prejudice and and how we can deal with that empowering conversation and how we can deal with that uh, for ourselves and for our, our community. So thank you so much. And uh, I'll go out with um, listening to a little bit to MC Yogi's Give Love. So we'll go, go end with the loving note with how we can give love to all these people and, uh, and give love to ourselves and, and empower ourselves for, our, for our, our future endeavors. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Take care.
Feel the love.